You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. You know how we always say we want to get comfy, cozy, and crippled on the show? Well, now, guess what? You actually can, because we have new merch! You can go to the merch link in the show notes and click on the link and you'll be brought to our partners at TeePublic where you can pick up a t-shirt, a hoodie, a mask, a crew neck, a baseball tee, all with our slogan, shining a bright light on disability stories in a variety of colors and sizes just for you. So if you want to wear a shirt that really is comfy, cozy, and crippled, you can do so right now by clicking the merch link in our show notes. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you in part by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonapussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. You can shop now at Clonawilly.com and if you use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you'll get 20% off site-wide. Wow, that's an offer that cannot be cloned. So if you want to get your own DIY Clona Willy molding kit, you can shop there right now. And be sure to use DarkPod at checkout. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. This is an offer that cannot be cloned. Get it now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. We are already at episode 247 of the official episodes. And with all our bonus episodes, we're at episode like 333 now, which is amazing. So officially, this is 247. Unofficially, with all the bonus stuff we've done and all the minisodes and all those things, we're actually at like 333, which is really cool. Wow. Thank you so much for sticking around, and we have so much more to come. Um, But let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and dive right into this episode. This one is pretty jam-packed, so I'm going to dive, I'm going to jump right into it, which is ironic, because I can't jump at all, but I'm going to jump right into this one. Um, Today on the show, I sit down with my new friend, Rebecca Alexander, who is a psychotherapist out of New York City, and we sit down and talk about her experiences 
with Usher syndrome. And Usher syndrome is a condition where you basically you start going deafblind. And we talk about her experiences of going deafblind and what that's like for her and why her her not being able to hear is one of her greatest gifts. We talk about how deafblind sex is actually better than hearing sex. We talk about how she is perceived as a professional, as somebody who is going deafblind, um, and what that means for her in her practice. We talk about, you know, grief and loss and disability with respect to her deafblindness. There's so many things that we touch on in this episode. This one is jam-packed, and I really, really super enjoy it. So I hope you do too. So without further ado, we're going to shine a bright light on my friend, Rebecca Alexander, right now. Rebecca Alexander, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, such a pleasure to have you on Disability After Dark. It is so nice to sit down with you. We've been planning this now for what feels like ages because time and the pandemic and time and what is that? Who knows? Um, so hello. Can you, I'm so happy to have you here. Can you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit and tell us who you are, what you do? Sure. So my name is Rebecca Alexander. I live in New York City in Manhattan. I am a psychotherapist, a group fitness instructor, definitely a disability rights advocate, and an all-around crazy person like most of the people out there. I have something called Usher syndrome, which causes both progressive deaf blindness. So I'm completely deaf without the use of my cochlear implants and a normally sighted person has about 180 degrees of vision and I have just about 10 degrees of vision straight ahead. Okay, so if you could just, if you could just like describe what that looks like to you. Oh man, I always try to. So I, for my um, friends who have manual access with their hands, I oftentimes will tell them to make O's over their eyes. And for people who can't, I, the, the hardest vision for me is below me. Uh, as I told you, I ate shit on my way to my office today, which was a blast. And so it oftentimes feels like if you were looking through, you know, like those kaleidoscopes or the binoculars you have when you look through like the circles that are- Yeah, yeah, and you see the thing inside there. Yeah, it's sort of like looking through that. So when you have, when we talk about degrees, it's like if you were to make um, do, like 10 degrees literally starting in front of your face that's the amount of vision I have straight ahead of me so for what you might see like an entire environment in front of you an entire desk with all of your you know desk items I would all of my porn it's okay you can say all okay, of my porn with all, all of, of your porn so your porn is alphabetized and you make yeah it. that's right it's all there all of your alphabetized porn you see right in front of you. My dildos, all my stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just a lot of scanning um, and a lot of sometimes seeing shit and being like, wait a second, what am I seeing? And then sometimes someone will say, oh, that's what this is. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I see that. But yeah, so it's kind of a trip for sure. So and then the other part of that is so you're also losing your hearing a little bit. So my hearing without my cochlear implants that I have, and I'll just show you what one of these looks like. Oh, um, they're it pretty. Magnetically adheres to the side of my head. The surgery, they like basically embed as a magnet, which is the internal piece of the cochlear implant yeah. through the cochlea. 
And so without them, I am completely deaf and it's wonderful. Like, especially when you live in, you know, New York, but um, I use sign language and even tactile sign language, which is the language of the deaf blind. So when I don't have my ears on, which I prefer to, to be deaf, just because it's so relaxing, it's like my religion, the silence of it. Wow. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Like what is, because I have not, you know, in my ignorance, I've never heard somebody say, I have heard people say I prefer deafness, but I've never heard it said in such a like powerful way. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, when I first started losing my hearing, I woke up one morning and I had really loud ringing in my ears and, you know, war veterans describe having tinnitus or tinnitus, which is, you know, head noise. Um, I had just head noise. It was so loud. It felt like I couldn't hear people speak to me over it. And that's a natural side effect of hearing loss. But I, I later went on as my hearing loss continued to have auditory hallucinations, which was an absolute crazy trip, like hearing a a woman screaming, hearing creaky stairs, hearing um, like a power drill. And in the middle of the night, a a foghorn, like in the middle of Manhattan, in the middle of the night, it was impossible. But the sensation was so real that I actually got up in the middle of the night and went to open my window to see like, what the fuck are they doing construction for at three in the morning? And of course, you know, nothing there. But So once I kind of adjusted to the tinnitus and I've had it for 20 something years now. So it's sort of like, it's almost like if you hear the refrigerator running in your kitchen and it's sort of annoying, but you just tune it out because you're used to it. (laughs) Yeah. That's sort of what I liken it to. But so whenever I don't have to talk to someone, I, the first thing I do is take my ears off. So the minute we're done today, the minute this is over, you're going to like whip your ears off and then... Exactly. If I don't have a patient I have to meet with, if, I mean, it, it's, it's just a godsend and it really feels like silence is my religion. It, it helps me stay focused. It's, um, and there's a lot of auditory fatigue that comes with having digital hearing. So yeah. Can you, can you kind of go into a little bit more of that? What is, what does that feel like? Yeah. So because, so the hearing loss that I have, I got to the point where my right ear, my right ear, I never really used. It was like mostly just decorative. It could wear an earring, <laughs> but you know, I could take environmental sounds in, but I couldn't really discriminate words. So I always yeah. used my left ear for the phone. People always were walked on my left side, sat on my left side and my right ear in 2013, I think with the hearing aid, I had 28% discrimination and without it, I had 26%. So basically the hearing aid wasn't doing me much good. 26% of the time someone spoke to me, I could accurately repeat back what was said. And I decided to go through the surgery and a shit ton of listening therapy later, my right ear tested at about somewhere between 92 and about 98%, which is dramatic. It was life-changing for me. And so then everybody started, you know, moving to my right side. And it's sometimes I forget the fact that my right ear used to be sort of useless to me. So I finally, in 2017, my left ear became a candidate and I got it implanted. And after three months, because I became, I got implanted as soon as it was a candidate, I tested si- in, in silence in, with sentences, I tested at hundred percent. So it, it was life-changing for me. But I mean, your question was the auditory fatigue. So basically, it bypasses the hair cells and the hair cells are what tells your brain what you're hearing. And it goes yeah. straight to the auditory nerve. So the, what's being stimulated is my auditory nerve. And over time throughout the day, when you're exposed to so many sounds, it's like, dude, fucking enough. Like it's a, I, lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot, sensory overload. Yeah. 
Um, and so that, I mean, that's a, I, you know, as you were talking about kind of getting tested, I've seen so many videos of people who are, who are natively deaf saying like, you know, this kind of stuff is not good. They should just be, they should just learn sign language. Why would you get this? Like, have you come up against any of those people that are like, you should just let it be what it is? Like, how do you feel about that? So um, cochlear implants, as you know, in the deaf community is very controversial. Yeah. Uh, I spent a lot of time um, learning sign language. I worked at the school for the deaf. I am, it is a very personal decision. I think most people, so people who are not deaf and who don't come from sort of that world, who are really hearing think, well, why wouldn't you get cochlear implanted? Um, I was raised as a hearing person. So when you're deaf, you can't just get cochlear implanted and ta-da, you hear. In fact, a lot of people I think had so much insecurity about their deafness that they may have found a doctor that would implant them despite it not being in their best interest. And they ended up never wearing the implant because even if they were given access to sound, they would never be able to discriminate the sounds because hearing, listening, it's an auditory skill that you have to develop very early. So I think it's a very personal decision. For me as someone going deaf and blind, I needed to have as much access to information as I could because yep. I'm completely blind. Like I'm not gonna have my vision to rely on. I'm gonna have to rely on my ears. And so-, so it was actually an access need for you. It wasn't even, it was an access need. Yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely an access need. So for me, it's a very personal decision. It's not something I just go and like, um, you know, share with the world, like, look how great this is. For me, it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. I have so many deaf friends and the deaf community is such a rich and vibrant culture and so fucking cool that I absolutely respect and understand why people who are deaf want to be respected for their deafness and not seen as, you know, someone who has to be fixed. Yeah, yeah, completely. But I understand for you, like, just for your quality of life later on as things progress. And I think that's, that's, you're in a really unique position in that you, most of us think you have deafness or you have disability. How could you have both? So you're right. in a unique position where you're deaf and you're also going blind. And then you also have other like disabilities that are comorbid with all that. So like, yeah. I think for you, it's totally an access need. And I think you, for you, you made the right decision. Yeah. Yeah, it was the right decision for me, but it doesn't mean that it's right for everybody. Of course. Um, I want to move to the sexy stuff because the very first thing you wrote to me on the forum, and I, that's just why I was like, yep, got to have this person on right away. <laughs> the very first thing you wrote to me on the forum was <laughs> the, why deaf blind sex is better than hearing sighted sex. Uh -huh. And I need you to tell me why. Okay. So... Uh, it to me, it's sort of it's one of those things that I feel like people are really m missing out on. So part of having cochlear implants is means that they're devices that if they can get knocked off, and like when you're getting busy, it's really easy and your head's moving around on a bed. It's really easy for an implant to fly off, and then you're like, "Fuck, where's my implant?" Right? Yeah. Um, and so, but the other thing is, is that when I'm able, so let's say the lights are off, so I can't see a thing. And I have no ears on, so I can't hear a thing. And I have never been more connected to my physical body. And like, don't get me wrong. I'm someone who like loves, you know, talking dirty. Like I love all of the aspects that like come with being able to hear. You did say before we hit record that you have quite a mouth on you. So I, I it doesn't surprise me in the least. 
Okay. So fair enough. Uh, but like being able to be that, you know, it's so funny. People are so uncomfortable, I think in their bodies in general, like yep. able-bodied or dis- you know, having a disability that to, um, for me, that's like something that really allows me to feel so in my body and so alive in some weird way, because I don't have my hearing or my sight to rely on. So I feel like when I feel something that feels good, I'm like, I mean, it's just, it's like threefold. Like, it's just, that's all I feel. I'm not distracted with any other sounds. I'm not distracted with my annoying dog barking, you know, or, or anything else. And I think the other part of it is that people sometimes are uncomfortable making noises. People are, are uncomfortable with the noises that come with sex, right? Yeah, but, the noises that come when you come. Right. I mean, and so some of that is like, it's hard because I want to be a part of those things. But I also think that having, it's just a different way of having sex. And it's also, it's, it's such a body experience. It's not oriented in any other senses. It's such a physical um, sort of experience for me. And you don't worry about the noises you make. You just go, it's like, almost like not, I don't want to say, animalistic what's the word I'm looking for I mean you can say animalistic I love animalistic yeah I mean it just feels like very much like I can just be free I mean I I I can liken that to you know sex with my sex worker when I get to just let go and I get to like when he puts me in in my in my medical sling to transfer me to and from my bed and then Uh we get down to stuff like that's those moments where I can let go yeah being able to just let go in your disabled body is really freeing and something we don't do enough and I think you know you you spoke earlier about what people are afraid of the sounds they make I can say I am afraid of the sounds I make sometimes and it's but once you show somebody once you let somebody into the reality of your disabled sex and they see it like when I showed them my sling or you show them your ears or your lack of ears rather like maybe they it, it, it makes you feel safer to like, okay, now I'm going to try this. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you don't have, there's so many things that, that like, we have so many mind fucks, right? We have things that like make us feel like, oh, is this okay? Or we're, you know, and, and you have to set up whoever your partner is, you have to set up for me, it's like, I use sign, you know, and, but it's not like I see the signs you have to use my, I have to use my physical body. Um, so, you know, but then otherwise, like I, if the person I'm with is going to come, like, it's not like I hear them saying I'm going to come, you know, it's like, literally I have to feel it and feeling that and feeling that buildup of it is just so hot. That's, I mean, yeah, I have never thought of sex that way. Cause you're right. When I have sex with, with somebody, namely my sex worker, he'll say like, I'm going to come, I'm going to, you know, so, you know, and like, but you you don't know in two ways you can't see it and you can't hear it so you have to like and not to be like super not to go too too graphic here but I am curious because it's such a bodied experience for you like when someone's coming with me like I know what that feels like and like but I also knew it was coming because they said I'm gonna come for right. you you don't have that what so does it does it feel differently than than what you would assume when a sighted person would Am I explaining that right? Does it make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question, right? Because you learn to rely on your other senses and you learn to. And so, you know, this just as, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this a gazillion times. One of the biggest, 
you know, annoyances that I hear among heteronormative women is that when they're, you know, having sex with a guy and the guy is just like, you know, did you orgasm? Like afterwards, they're always asking you, like, did you come? Like, I couldn't tell. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know, <laughs> their ego is so deeply ingrained into whether they made you come or not that it's like, it's so, ugh. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's such an insecurity that I think is. And so I think that when you don't have to rely on that or worry about whether this person, when you can just really be in the moment, because I mean, you know, the people who struggle and, and for whether if they don't have a, you know, a disability that interferes with it or a medical condition that interferes with it. People who can't get hard or can't maintain an erection, for instance, the reason why first and foremost is because they're too in their heads. Yeah. Yeah. Their, yeah. their anxiety interferes with it. And so when you take that out and you don't have all of these sort of sounds and you have to really be present with your body and get out of your mind, it is so freeing. Just like what you described with your sling. It is just so freeing. I have a similar experience. I can get hard just fine, but sometimes I can't come. And so like, you know, we have, unfortunately men have been so conditioned that to have good sex, you have to come and it needs to be this like explosive moment between you and a partner and that, which I'm learning more and more as I have more sex, how ridiculous that is. But <laughs> there've been moments where I've been with like really hot people and it's a really great time and I'm hard and it's all great, but we've been doing the same thing for like 20 minutes and I'm, I'm not coming and they're not coming and you can tell they're getting tired and I'm getting tired. And it's like, well, I, so you get so frustrated because like you just want to blow a load <laughs> all over the room and you can't. So I understand like the frustration. And for me, it's in my head, like, because I'm disabled and because I have a disability and I already have all these things against me. The one thing I can do is come super hard. So I have to do that to prove that I'm just as good as the rest of them, which is so silly, but that is definitely something in my own head that I've struggled with. I just got goosebumps hearing that because first of all, it's so, so honest and real. And I think so many of us experience it, you know, those of us with disabilities of trying to kind of prove ourselves, whether even if we know that that's something we're, you know, kind of- Like, you know, you know it in a way that's like, um, intellectual how silly it is what you're saying mm -hmm. but in your head you're like if I come really hot like for me with and I remember the exact moment it happened I'm with this really hot porn star we're fucking it's great things are great and I'm like okay I want to come and I said I'm gonna come and then I didn't come and then 20 minutes later I still hadn't come and like he he says to me are you gonna come yet I want to I want to be done and I was like uh. So, I mean, that's it. He, I, mean, I remember. I was like, "Well, I'm not going to come now," but I just felt so upset because I was like, "What do I do here?" And how do I explain to you that the reason I can't come is because my own internalized ableism? Like, how do I explain to you that in a really sexy way, while also making you still want to make me come? How do I do that? <laughs> well, and I think that the more, like, if you're, you know. <laughs> having sex for 20 minutes and you're still not coming, then, then you're more conscious of the fact that you're not coming and that's going to make you less likely to come to. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many people I know, I mean, these days, whether they're disabled or able-bodied who take different types of medications that, you know, interfere with like, whether it's psychotropic drugs. And so a lot of them have difficulty, maybe, you know, they can get hard, but they can't ejaculate super easily or they, you know, they, that that is one of the issues that they face. And it doesn't mean they're not enjoying it. It's just a side effect. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. 
again because I work in sex and disability, like I hear that all the time, and I I've said I have said like if you're disabled and your genitals don't work, it doesn't mean you're not enjoying it, or your genitals aren't working the way you want them to, doesn't mean you're not enjoying it. But when you're in that moment, because we are so again so conditioned as humans to be like the only way that I'm gonna know you're enjoying yourself is if you blow all over me. And if you don't, you've somehow failed. Like that's right. so hard to get that out of your head. There's like this sense of like accomplishment or like we need to have the sense of finality, you know, yeah. like that this is, we reached our goal. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you when you can, when I don't have my ears in and I can't see, like, you know, oftentimes you'll hear someone like I'll have a friend and be like, oh my God, I gave my husband a blow job for like 20 minutes. And I felt like I'm terrible TMJ. And I was just like, like, are we doing this? Like, what's going on? And I'm thinking to myself, here's the thing. If I'm doing that and I don't have ears on, I'm so focused on exactly what I'm doing that I think I'm actually doing a better job than just sitting there being like, is he going to fucking do this? Or like, I'm uh, I mean, tired going to bed, mean, or whatever. You probably are. And also I feel, I feel like we need a space to say like, we as people, whether you're disabled or not, if you're tired and you don't want to do it, stop and say right. like i'm not into it right now maybe like what i appreciated about my time with that porn star was he said i'm going home i was like okay well i'm not in this anymore like we're done so you know i'll see you next time maybe we didn't i ended up not seeing it again because i was like that was super like could you be less cool about something right now right 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 <laughs> like so we didn't end up seeing each other again but like i i can definitely relate to you know, just wanting to feel like as a disabled person that I've given the, my, the best sex I could because I have all these other things tied against me. So I, I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And it, and I think that it does, it often keeps people um, with disabilities and maybe, you know, people who are able-bodied too in relationships that are unsatisfying whether it's like, you know, physically or emotionally, because they feel like other people would not be willing to have sex with them or that it somehow makes that makes them sort of like a bigger um, hurdle just because yeah. of the way that they have sex. So, yeah. Another way you've described your sex is bionic sex with having the implants. Can <laughs> you, what did you mean? I mean, is it kind of what we've already described? Was there another part to it that no, so like, I mean, it's funny because because there's such a difference between having sex with ears on and having sex without ears, I call them my ears. Without I love it, I love it. I feel like, um, like the type of sex I have when I have my ears on is much more sort of auditorily kind of stimulating in that way that like yeah. it does, you know, that talking dirty like is that much hotter because it's not the way that I always have sex. So, oh wow so yeah. like when you have your ears on and you talk dirty to somebody it's i guess it's stimulating because you because as you've explained it goes past the 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 hairs it's stimulating a whole other part of you that we're probably not even in tune with if we don't understand that but you are right so like when i'm able to hear someone make those noises that i usually rely on my body it sort of gives me a whole other way of experiencing sex and when I could hear myself saying these things, I mean, I may still talk dirty when I'm like, don't have ears on, but I can't hear what somebody's responding with. Yeah. So when, when I have like auditorily sort of stimulating sex, it's just like a whole other aspect of being able to take advantage of like having ears and not having ears and having that option 
but of really like getting into it in a different way. Because I think talking dirty is, is really sort of, I don't know. I, and even just verbal communication. I hear so many people in my practice, in my psychotherapy practice, yep. who, you know, tell me just that they kind of, it's not that people, you know, who are in relationships, for instance, it's not that they don't want to have sex. It's that they don't want to have the kind of sex they are going to have with their partners. They don't want it to be quote unquote, boring sex. Exactly. Like they're used to like the same shit. Like, ah, eh, this is a kind of like, I'm over it. You know, I'd rather go to bed and get a good night's sleep or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I think that for, for so many people, if like they were able to communicate more, I asked them, well, do you guys verbally like talk during sex? And people have so many preconceived ideas or they're afraid to be vulnerable. They're afraid that if they talk dirty, that the person they're with is going to be like, whoa, what the fuck is up with this person? Yeah. Like what is the, and I also think like, in hearing you say that, I'm just thinking about like, boring sex is such a fucking privilege. You're lucky to be able to have boring sex with somebody that you know and trust and care about. Like, yeah. I haven't had sex in a year since this pandemic started. I am jonesing for some dick in my life. I, you know, so like, what I would give for a boring Saturday night blowjob session. Like, like sure, like I, I would love that because it would mean that like. And also boring sex means you get to be yourself. Like you don't have to put on airs for somebody and you don't have to like play this game of like, oh, I'm cooler than I actually am or I want to be. <laughs> but here's the thing. Boring sex also can be very, I find that people who are used to having sex, like there's a sign in sign language where, you know, just sort of same, same. And yeah. And I think that for people like that, they end up having very dissociative sex. I mean, a lot of people have dissociative sex if they have a history of trauma and that kind of yeah. thing. Even those people end up becoming very dissociated and like not even present for it. I want to shift gears because I'm curious. In your in your psychotherapy practice, what how are how are the people coming in? How do they receive you being a disabled practitioner? So it's interesting because I mean, listen, if you you know, we live in the, in a world where you can Google everything and anything. Yeah. So if you Google my name, the first 10 things that come up are deafblind, deafblind, deafblind. Right. So I don't know who comes into my office and has Googled the shit out of me and like, has all these things. Like, I don't know how many of them are coming in, like curious to see like, Oh, what's this going to be like, or like, is she going to be able to see me or hear me or whatever the case may be. When I have deaf patients, I don't wear my ears. So that we can sign and I can really um, get it because signing is a different, it's a whole different language. It's not just, I'm going to translate this word. It's a whole, and I have friends who are deaf. It's a completely, and I can't sign because my hands are fucked, mm -hmm. but like, <laughs> I would love to be able to. It's something that I'm so like, that is the coolest fucking thing ever. I wish I could do it. Like, it's just a, it's a whole different language. I know it is. And I think some people think, I mean, if I could tell you the number of time I get like is sign language universal, no, no, it's not universal. And, and also it's not English. I think that people, it's so different. The grammar is different. So much of it revolves around the face. You know, I think people, when they see deaf people signing, they're like, Whoa, that dude's super like intense or emotive. And it's like, no, they're actually just expressing themselves. That's their grammar. Yeah, they're accenting the, what they're saying with, with their hands. With their face. With their face. It's a totally different language, you're right. Um, but so the people who come in, like, I always wonder, and I always assume that they've Googled me. Now, if I'm sitting with them one-on-one, -on -one, I the first thing I always tell people is that I have cochlear implants. And if I ask you to repeat yourself, it's not because I'm not listening. It's because I didn't hear you. 
I think um, in terms of the vision, I bring it up if it's relevant, you know, but if I'm sitting one-on-one -on -one with someone, they're working with me isn't about me. It's about them. Yeah. So, but I, I am not, um, I'm not your average sort of, and I think that the culture has changed, but psychotherapists historically have like had this wall where we assume we go in their office and they have it all figured out and they don't have their own personal lives. The best therapists I know are people who have really been through it, you yeah. know, yeah. who've really been through like some serious shit. So um, I've definitely had, some, I had a guy who came in and basically said that he was worried that I wouldn't be able to see him. I've had people who speak to, you know, softly. And I've said, listen, unless you want me to come and sit on your lap, I'm not going to be able to help you. Yeah. But, you know, and for those people who do come in and tell me that they know about my disability, I'll, I'll you know, often ask them like how they feel about it or ask them to, you know, encourage them to ask questions. But I also tell them that one of the best things and the most sort of human um, aspects of being alive is helping each other. Yeah. So I'm here to help you, but I need you to help me too. I mean, and that's what I do in with my work and with disability activism is like my job has always been to bring people into my experience and hope that something that I've told you resonates. Even if they do, even if they say horribly ableist things and say stuff that I like, you know, I don't super love. Part of me is like, okay, what part of the journey are you on and how can I guide you to the other side of that in a way that doesn't end our friendship or end our discussion in a way that doesn't make you feel shame, but also respects me as a disabled person. And is okay. And you know, so I, I love that you're, that you, that you want to help people and by letting them ask questions. Cause mm -hmm. I think we've been taught when it comes to disability, you're not allowed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not, mm -hmm. it's not appropriate to ask questions. And I am, the more and more I do this work, I am learning that if they just asked me, I could tell them, or I could have the agency to be like, fuck you, I don't want to tell you. Like, mm -hmm. if you ask me and I'm having a bad spoon day, I can say, thank you so much for your question. I don't have the time right now, or I don't have the energy right now, but I'll get back to you. Or if I'm having an off day, thank you for asking, but fuck off, don't ask it that way. Like, I think asking the question gives me the chance to say no. Right. Well, and I think that that is one of those, like, I, I mean, how many experiences do we have on a regular basis where we have to decide whether this is going to be a teachable moment or whether we're just going to let it slide, you know? So and, many. And that's, it's such, that's such a hard, that's such a hard spot to be in because part of, as an educator, part of me is like, every moment should be teachable which I know is not true. And I know it sounds like totally ableist. I get that. But also the other part of me is like, I'm tired right now. And like, uh, are you somebody who I'm ever going to talk to again? Like, are you somebody who I care about? Like there's all these factors that go into, are you somebody whose dick I want to suck? Cause if, if I want to suck your dick, then I might teach you about what I mean. What right. you, like, are you somebody that I'm going to spend time with? Otherwise maybe like, maybe I don't want to. And when I've hooked up with people that I don't, will never see again, I teach them how to get me in bed and nothing more like mm. how, how to do that. Like when I was in college, I used to do the thing where I'd hook up with a guy, show him how to get me from my, from my chair to the bed, do the thing with him and then be like, leave me in bed. I'll call somebody else to help me get in my chair. Cause I was like, I don't want to show you the rest of it. I don't, I don't need to because we're not going to remember each other after this. <laughs> like we're not going to hang out again. So right. 
it's like, not worth served your purpose. Yeah, it's which sounds horrible, <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's it's not worth either of our time. So like you do pick and choose what's a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, and you know, we get plenty of really ignorant, really sort of. Uh, even hurtful despite how long we've been living sort of you know in this world of having a disability like there's we're we're human you know things that people say hurt and so I think those are the times that sometimes can be hardest for me when I just want to be like you know really go off on someone and realize that like it's not worth my energy or my time yeah because what I like what I realized in going off on people is that it hurt me like it made me it made me physically ill for like years I was sick all the time with worry, with anger, with like, you don't realize how much that, how much ableism breaks down your body, how much it actually like physically hurts you. And if your reaction every single time is, fuck you, you're an ableist, like I find that it made me sick. So it's exhausting. And you know, I mean, this is sort of like all the people you see on social media on Facebook who hide behind their screens and say whatever the fuck they want and are so angry and are just look, waiting to be offended or looking to attack. Like that's their own shit, like pro- being projected. It's sort of, um, I sort of see it the same way. None of those people are happy. None of those people do that and then feel better about themselves. And so I kind yeah. of feel like it's the same thing for us. I, I just try to remember that like if I can put some, and this is going to sound so cheesy and so like woo woo, but like I am of the mind, if I can put some good in the world today, then that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. And you know, uh, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I feel like, you know, people, when they find out that I have like 10 degrees of vision left, I was told I was going to be blind by the age of 30. I'm 42. So the fact that I have 10 degrees of vision, even with my cataracts and how much I like, I wear sunglasses and like, a gangster rapper hat when I watch TV to cut the glare. <laughs> like that to me is, I'm so grateful for th- the fact that I even have that. And people say, oh, I'm so sorry. And so it's just like perspective, I think. Yeah. But I think that when we come to own what's going through us and don't get me wrong, I cry my eyes out when I'm having you know a hard day or when I feel of a course. sense of loss. But my owning my disability and being comfortable with it makes other people comfortable. I think with it. And it also, I think there's so much humor that comes with being in our situation, even in being a very ableist world that there's, there's just so much humor to be had and good to sort of bring about. And there are so many people out there who would benefit from the positive things we have to share as opposed to just fueling the fire or screaming into the void of negativity. Or like, you know, or like forcing, I've learned you can't force somebody to not be, to not do ableist stuff. You can't force them to. You have to guide them, give them the tools, say, here's what's in my toolbox. Let me gently guide you because you can't force them to, to be guided either. You have to like let them figure it out. And if they don't take the tools, you've done your best. Yep. Like, yeah, move on. You have, to just, you have to move on. Speaking of moving on, I want to talk to you about, you know, one of the things you put in the forum was that you have a progressive disability and like what... And one of the things that, and you, you just mentioned a second ago, like you cry your eyes out when you have to like think about some of the losses you're experiencing. I don't think we talk about that enough. And I don't think we talk about disabled grief enough and what that feels like. Can you, if you feel comfy too, can you share like what the that loss feels like for you and what yeah. it feels like to have everything be progressing the way it is? 
Yeah. So I live with, and if I start crying, then that's just the way that, I mean, awesome. I roll. Um, <laughs> but, and, you know, so many times you see people who start crying and they're like batting at their like eyes to stop it. And I'm like, dude, just no, let it out. Feel it. Let it out. I can um, cut around it and find it. Don't worry. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, you know, there's so many things like, and I wonder what your thoughts are about this, but, you know, I have two nieces and um, the idea of having kids, I froze my eggs like a few years ago, not even because I really knew whether I wanted to do it. It was because I felt like my mom and my sister-in-law said that they really thought that I should do it because then I don't have to make a decision now. And the whole process was really strange. Um, I felt very conflicted about it. I absolutely love children but it's enough to deal with my life on a daily basis with all of the obstacles that I face and all of the stress that comes with living with a disability in a very yep. world that having to project any of that stress or anxiety or not only onto a kid, but also create more for myself feels just like, I, I, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the same way. Like I love kids. I love when little, my favorite thing, I have a friend who has a son and he's two. And I think I told this story before, but I'll tell it again because I love it. He's two, he was, or he's older now, but he was two when I met it, when I was hanging out with him. And he, we're downtown in Toronto and he didn't know what my wheelchair was called. So he kept calling it a Zoom Zoom, which oh. I thought was, which like broke my heart into a million pieces. It was adorable. And so at the, uh, we kept saying Zoom Zoom, but also we get, we use the word wheelchair. And so by the end of our visit, he called it a wheelchair and I fell apart with like just <laughs> I went home and I cried for like five minutes because I was like this is adorable mm -hmm. but I also think like me getting out of bed is a whole production by itself how am I gonna do that to be a daddy to a kid how am I gonna like and plus I'm 40 I've never gone on a second date like the logistics of me having a kid now are like oh well I think that's I think that's past so like I kind of make the joke that I'd much rather be a daddy than a dad. Um, mm -hmm. So like yeah, totally, and you know when I go and visit my nieces, the first thing they want to do is play with my cane. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it's so cute. And then you know, like my sister-in-law will be like, "Ava, go get the like get the cane." Like Aunt, they call me Aunt Becky. Aunt Becky's gonna trip on it, which is hilarious because you know the very <laughs> thing that I need, I would trip over. Yeah. But, um, but they're very comfortable with it. The only people who know how to change the batteries on my cochlear implants in my family are my two nieces who were five and seven. Amazing. So there's a, there's an openness to them. And, you know, the reality is if I had all of the, you know, money in the world and I could hire a gazillion people to help me with it, maybe it would be a different story, but. But also if you hired a gazillion people, like I, cause I thought about that, so I was like, I could hire, I could hire like a PSW to, to help me take care of my kid. But then part of me is like, am I taking care of the kid or right. are they doing it? So like, I don't, and I have friends with disabilities who have children and they, they do a great job parenting. For mm -hmm. me personally, though, I don't think that it's something that I, I don't know if I'd want to put that on a kid. I don't know if I'd yeah. want, like, I genuinely feel like if I brought a kid, if I like through surrogacy or whatever, brought a kid in the world, they would have to then contend with daddy can't do this. Daddy can't mm -hmm. this. And, like they would learn about disability. Sure. But would I be a good parent? I don't know. 
And kids are shitty, man. I mean, there's like, they're great, but like the shit that I hear that goes on in like playgrounds and like on social media now, we didn't grow up in that time. I'm really so, I'm so glad we didn't. Oh my God, I'm so happy we didn't. Oh God, me too. I mean, and so like even having to deal with, you know, kids become teenagers. I work with teenagers in my practice. Their their parents embarrass the shit out of them. Why? Because they're teenagers. Yeah. So imagine having a teenager and being the parent with a disability and like all of the, ugh. No, thanks. Yeah, yeah, like it's just no. so. But as, as far as the loss is concerned, I think that um, this feeling. So right now, I'm trying to decide whether I should get my cataracts taken out, and I've gone and been, you know, evaluated. And it turns out that, like, on a scale of one to four, where four is the worst and one is the best, my cataracts are actually a one. But because my field of vision is so limited it feels like that one is much more severe. So it was actually like three and a half. Right, exactly. And so they did this PAM test, which is a perceived acuity meter, which is super weird. And I cried afterwards because it gave me some sense of like what it would feel like to have greater acuity. And, you know, and and you don't even have to cut this out because I think it's important for people to hear people mourn and experience emotion. We don't hear enough of it. I felt like I was reaching for something that I hadn't experienced with something that then they pulled this away from me. And like, it was, I don't know, it was so weird. It was like, it reminded me of where my vision used to be. And, and, you know, for me, once I got cochlear implanted, when I got cochlear implanted, it totally rid me of all of my residual hearing because the process itself is so traumatic to the hair cells. So I had to um, grieve that. I had to grieve the loss of the residual hearing I had. When my dog barks, I don't hear her if I have my ears off. I feel her if she's on the bed with me. The Um, vibrations, yeah, yeah. Right, and if I look at her, I can tell from the way that her body language is, whether someone's at the door or whether, you know, someone's at the elevator, there's like, I I learned to read her body language. But um, I think that for me, the cataracts is like this next step. Okay, so I get my cataracts removed and then what do I do? I just sit and wait to go blind and that's that's hard. And, you know, learning braille at my age is hard. I mean, I've started learning braille and it's fucking hard. Yeah. Like, well, so, first of all, th- thank you for sharing all those pieces because I don't think people hear that enough. I don't think they understand. The, like you said, there's no fucking nuance in these in these the social media versions of disability or the social media versions, like no one hears this stuff. So I'm really happy that you shared mm-hmm. the the stuff you're going through because no one is talking about this stuff. And thank you. Mm-hmm. But also like, I would say as somebody who is deemed by all the doctors severely disabled, I just say I'm severely sexy. So whatever, like, fuck you. <laughs> totally. but, like, but like, I would say, do whatever you need to do for you that makes you feel okay mm-hmm. as a disabled person. Like, don't let, you know, don't let, it's, and it's so easier said than done. I know this, believe me, but don't let like what you think you're supposed to do, fix your decision, do what you, what feels right. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, absolutely. And I think that's the way I try to operate with so many things. And I think that the vulnerability and just sort of the experience of, of living with loss, you know, oftentimes people experience a loss and then they grieve um, and the grieving process is long and it's different for all different things, whether it's having a progressive disorder that causes you to lose your senses or whether it's losing a very close loved one. Um, You know, everybody goes through their own process. Living in this constant state of loss 
is a is a very um, humbling experience. And it's not something it's strange because neither you nor I could ever imagine what our lives would be like if we didn't have our disabilities. Like it but absolutely makes us who we are. People have but, tried to imagine for us and you kind of go, what? I don't, that doesn't make any, like when people take my disability away from me, even if they're well-meaning and they, they're like, you know, when they're trying to like say, oh yeah, in, you know, this place, you might not be disabled. I go, no, my wheelchair is like my comfort place. What, what, don't take it from me. Like what, I don't know. But also at the same time, like I've lost the ability to pee. I've lost the ability to masturbate. Like I've lost really key things in, in my life, which has been very hard. Mm-hmm. Key things in my life that I was like, well, at least I can jerk off. At least I can pee. At least I can, you know, losing that. And again, not the same as you, but similar sense of loss and grief and like how do you and when we talk about grief disabled grief everybody goes oh don't worry about it it's fine and you're like no I need a space to like tell you how this feels but it's also allowing like when I allow myself to to, like really cry it it makes room for me to be able to really be like appreciate the things I still can do and it makes so able to have my humor and have like, all right, this is my life. Like you have to let these emotions out and then you move on. Yeah. What are, the, what, are the, what are the things in your life that you're like really, as a disabled person, what are the things in your life that you're grateful for? Of being deaf. <laughs> but I know I've said that. <laughs> Not being able to hear is one of the greatest gifts of, you know, having my hearing loss. But- and I think we found the tag for this episode. Like, I think, I think, I'm just going to put that as like the, probably the quote that's going to lead into the episode because it's, that's powerful. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's my religion for sure. And um, I would say, you know, I'm very, very grateful for my dog. Part of me, part of what I love so much about her is first of all, I'm not having kids. So, you know, she's sort of like my child. She's not a guide dog, but because I've had her, she's 10. So I've had her through the process of getting implanted on both sides and watching her adapt to my changing abilities has been so fascinating the way that she gets my attention now by scratching me or the things that she does is is so different and interesting than what she used to do before and part of why I love her is because I don't know whether you know after her my next dog is going to be a guide dog and so I I'm so she is like you know my pride and joy I love dogs in general me too what kind is she she's a mini golden doodle Oh my God, we would be the best of friends. Uh, Drew, they're, everything's a doodle poodle noodle these days. I mean, I I had a, when I was a kid, I had a purebred golden retriever. His name was Flash. Again, not a guide dog. He was not trained in any of that, but he knew I had disabilities. He knew he was so smart. You could tell that he was like, this person's in a wheelchair. Like he just, you, they're, very, they're so intuitive and we don't even realize he would, from the time he was a puppy, he would hide underneath my wheelchair to protect himself from whatever scary thing was, you know, out there. He oh would come under to me, just to me, and hide underneath my chair. It, it was this. It was the sweetest thing. It was like he just knew that this person needs safe place. Drew, that melts my fucking heart. Hearing a story like that is like, oh, I can't handle it. So he sweet. was my he was my buddy, and we had like, and he would he would make sure I was okay. I remember a couple moments where I needed stuff and he mm-hmm. knew and he'd go get somebody and he would see that I would drop something. He wouldn't pick it up for me, but he would go 
find somebody and be like, yo, my person needs this. Could you figure it out, please? Wow, that's awesome. We, I actually grew up with three golden retrievers, so I just remember they were being fur everywhere, and I used to trip over them all the everywhere, time. Everywhere, yeah. fur everywhere. Yeah, and Monkey, you know, now, I mean, ever since she was little, like, she knows that when I come in the room, even if I make eye contact with her so she can see that I see her, she gets the fuck out of the way. She's like, no, you're not tripping over me. Amazing. Um, one of the things you said in the question that I loved and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on we don't see a lot of deaf blind representation in the media right now um the only thing I can think of is I used to watch a show called another period like mm. years ago and they had somebody playing Helen Keller and uh-huh. playing like playing deaf blind uh-huh. but they weren't so what are like and you kind of said you didn't when you were growing up and even now you don't have a lot of role models mm-hmm. in in the in on tv and in movies so who are some of your role models yeah so now i mean role models i also feel is like these are friends of mine you know i feel i find so much sort of encouragement and sense of like camaraderie and motivation from so many people that i know like you know one of my friends Haben gurma i mean she's a badass she is like a sick business person and she's yeah. herself everything like I mean, it, she is just a, a badass and I really admire her because I don't have that. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a feeler, you know, um, and she's really built herself and made a brand for herself and created herself in a way. I mean, she also, you know, was born with this. So she learned Braille at a young age. And so she's just she's just a badass. So she's someone that I really sort of respect and admire. And I have a lot of friends, you know, a friend of mine who's able-bodied did a um, short film called Feeling Through. And he basically cast a, a guy who worked in the kitchen at the Helen Keller National Center to be the deafblind actor. It's based on Doug, my friend. He had an experience when he was in the Lower East Side one you know, day and he saw some guy standing there with a sign that said, I'm deafblind. If you see this, please help me across the street. And so he just, you know, that connection of like they used what they call print in palm, which is where you just literally, you know, print with your finger in someone's palm, the letters. And that was such a meaningful experience to him that he created this short film. And so there, it, there isn't a lot out there. And I think that that's, I'm so proud of what the disability movement is doing. I'm so proud of the shit you're doing. Like this is the disability after dark thing is like, fuck yeah. I remember when I was in high school, I was a senior and it's funny because I went to a Catholic high school and all of the priests were gay. Like it was not even like a question, but there was one, you know, this is when the HIV AIDS crisis was, was huge. It was in the nineties and I was in San Francisco and we had a class on um, disability and he showed us a movie about people with disability having sex. And this was before my disability had really progressed. And I was so taken and moved with the fact that A, there was a film about it and B, that he was showing it A, as a priest um, and B, just that like, because I think there's such an asexualization of having a disability that it sort of, it didn't blow my mind in a way of like, oh, I didn't think people with disabilities had sex. It was like, I couldn't picture it. And it was good to be able to have that experience to know like there are so many different ways for people to- Well, maybe there was something inside of you that was like, you knew without maybe having, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but maybe you have the, like the feeling of like, this will be part of my experience one day. I'm going to have to like, maybe that's why it moved you so because your your higher self was like oh this will be me 
like that's why well and i think that for the, you know part of what i love about and people you know i have made another video at some point i have these food for thought videos i do about being a burden and having a disability is not a burden having a lack of accessibility is the burden and you know that's our biggest issue is the lack of accessibility of course our disabilities are a burden in, in various ways but it's because the world in general is not accessible for us that's the burden that we have to kind of remember as opposed to sort of internalizing it See, um, but i think the part we're missing there for me anyway the part that we're missing there is we need space to talk about what it feels like to feel like a burden mm -hmm. that that's the whole piece of it that I think is missing when we say like, oh, or like how you just said, oh, we know, I know I'm not a burden. Like I know, or I know it's burdensome in some way. Right away, my brain went, cool. What does that like? What does it feel like? I think the part that we're missing in disability activism, at least that I've seen and what I try to do in my work is to bring people to a place of like, let's explore underneath the social media post. And let's go to how does it feel to be a wheelchair user? How does it feel to be deafblind? What what are the emotions that encompass that that we're not talking about? Mm -hmm. And then that, like when I made that video about being a burden, I, I basically just posed the question to people. Do you feel like a burden? When do you feel like a burden? What makes you feel like a burden? Why do you feel like a burden? And sort of the messages that we received and still receive for so long of being told that having needs means that you're, you know, it's burdensome to others. It means that you're too much. Like people tell me, especially gay men, all the time will be like, you're too much. You're too intense. You're, mm -hmm. you're a lot of work. Yeah, I can't, you know, well, what they're saying is they're reminding me in the in a kinder way that you're, you're you are a burden but I can't say that because that's rude but I can tell you that you're too much and so what I wish people would do is get to how does that feel it feels like shit it makes you want to cry it makes you want to like not reach out it makes you self-isolate more because you're like well every time I try I get told no mm -hmm. so why am I gonna why am I gonna try anymore like, what we have to get to is the like the language around disability is great we haven't yet i think peeled back enough layers to be like there's a feeling behind that mm -hmm. and i think these movements need to like need to remember that there's a feeling behind behind like disability activism like like yes you're angry but instead of just being angry and, and disabled which is valid and fair but tell me why you're angry like tell me the spark of why, what what made you what 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 was the first thing that made you mad about this and like get to that part because that underneath part is the most fascinating part for me of like how did this person how did they get here mm -hmm. in this space of disability and anger or disability activism that is you know angry or is a lot of like you're an ableist fuck you like all of that's valid but how did you get here mm-hmm and it's interesting. I mean, just I'm always so saddened when I see like on social media from both sides of like, you know, able bodied or disabled. I mean, one of the things we talked about, I think, even before we were recording is just the nuance of disability. And that's what we need to make room for. Like, am I hearing or sighted? Am I blind and deaf? Well, I'm kind of in between. And that makes people uncomfortable. People want to categorize. They want to know what like who you are, like where what you fit into. 
And when you don't fit into things, you know, some of the, the most creative people I know are people with disabilities. Why? Because every day you have to be creative about how you make things work. And they don't have a clear cut line of what their disability is. So like, mm-hmm. I can say I have CP, but I don't often say I also have depression. Like, mm-hmm. I do more on this show because it's mine, whatever. But like, mm-hmm. but like, I don't often say I, I'm a depressed, I have depression. Like, but I do. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you feel like you're, and maybe you can't answer this and maybe you don't want to answer this, but do you feel like your depression is related to having a disability or do you feel like it's a biochemical thing or is it both? Is it, I mean, that to me, I think. Sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's both. It's Uh a lot, it's totally intertwined with ableism. It's intertwined with, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I never feel like I'll be good enough. Then no matter what I do, like I put out the show, I do all this work, I'm, a public face of a brand like I did all oh, that's great but in my head the voice I hear is still not good enough you, you're still not out of poverty you still live on social assistance you, like that's what I hear so it's all connected to that and I think you know even though on the show I put out like you know people say to me oh you're so confident and I, I laugh at them and I go really because <laughs> I don't feel that way like so I I think it's totally, I think they're totally interconnected to each other. And Drew, like that is my life exactly. I mean, the the sense of urgency I feel because of my disability and the progression of it and the sense of never being enough is, it is, I mean, my, I always often say like my, my brain can be a miserable place to live in, you know, but in, you know, in my family, we have mental illness. So I have my disability and I have mental illness in my family and, um, it's so it's, you know, how can I tell you? I don't know if my anxiety and depression is because of my disability. I think it's a confluence of a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think for certain, I, I think it also in terms of like, in terms of we were talking about activism, I think active, the disability community makes up a lot of different spaces. You're allowed to have the one friend who's angry all the time, who does the marches and who does the angry social media posts and you're allowed to have the other disabled person that's like i'm not super angry i want to help somebody through and i want to guide people like me i want to guide somebody through but i respect other people who feel a certain way so like i think we just need more space for nuance in this in these and i've said it a couple times on my social media i think we need to say disability communities because Mm -hmm. there are so many different facets to disability to say mm-hmm. I think in certain instances it's okay to say we're all one and we like have to fight against like certain things sure but mm-hmm. I also think there's value and there's color in saying oh this little pocket over here does it this way or this little pocket of people over here do it this way mm-hmm. does it mean we can't come together we, we're allowed to have separate parts of our identity too Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, I did a continuing education class that I taught at Columbia and they do like the feedback afterwards where people can say what they liked and what they didn't like. And it was all about, you know, disability and how, how to be a better advocate for people with disabilities. And um, one of the comments at the end was like, and I made it clear to them, listen, I can speak to about disability, but I can't speak on behalf of people with disabilities only with the disability I have. And yeah. someone wrote in their notes, like, I wanted to hear more about people who use wheelchairs. And I'm like, well, 
I, I gave you as much as I could, but I am not someone living in a wheelchair. So it would yeah. be inauthentic and inappropriate for me to speak on that. Yeah. And probably you super know? ableist about it. I was like, well, I think being a wheelchair user is this way. Like, oh yeah, you're deafblind. Then you definitely know about every kind of disability out there. Right. And I, like, I remember saying that on social media, I said it probably like six, six or seven months ago. Could have been a year now. I said, like, I think we need to talk about disability communities and the disabled community came after me and was like, well, I, how could you say that? And it's so divisive. And I was like, no, I'm just saying like, we can all, we're allowed to have our own identities too. And in, I'm so tired of being told that like my voice has to be like in the same chorus as everybody else. It doesn't. Yeah. And it like, and yeah. It, like, so I think the more and more we do this work, the more and more we have to remember our, individuality as disabled people that's okay too it doesn't mean we can't come together and stand next to each other but it doesn't mean that all of us have to fight the same fight all at the same time i drew i want to ask you a question i don't know how we are in time but i want to i I got time go okay so you know how in your signature you're he they i want to understand i haven't seen that very frequently and i'm so there so there's one one issue that I really want to hear your thoughts about. Yes, really. But I don't know if I tell you that issue or whether I have you answer the question first. Uh, Maybe answer the question uh, and then I'll tell you what, what I had that came to mind for me. Sure. Okay, so sure. he, they, explain. So he, because I'm still a man, mm-hmm. in, my, in my view, I, I feel like a man, I feel attached to manliness Mm -hmm. but also in certain queer spaces I don't feel like I exist Mm -hmm. if I go to a queer bar or a queer or a gay event or I go and I hang out with other gay dudes who are not disabled I don't exist I am not seen as a viable sexual being like like the other guy over there so they allows me to to just be something else entirely and to not be confined or conformed into what a gay man or a queer person or a queer man is supposed to be doesn't mean I don't connect with my manliness. It just means that in certain spaces, in certain places, talking to certain people, I use they because it makes me feel like I can be something else rather than having to conform to this thing. Wow, that is, I mean, I, I, maybe you've explained this before and I just didn't hear it, but it makes so much sense. It's, it's essentially saying, feeling like other, being another. Yeah, I mean, I always have been other. Like, whether I, like, as much as people have tried to include me, as much as people have, you know, done stuff for me to make me feel included, and I'm not saying they haven't, I'm saying in my heart of hearts, I've always been othered. Mm-hmm. I put up a thing yesterday on social media that was like, I'm weird. And uh-huh. like I'm, I'm weirdness on wheels. And I did a whole post about how I'm, I'm, I'm weird and how like I've forgotten how to have fun as mm-hmm. a disability activist. So I'm just going to have more fun here. And mm-hmm. so like, I think part of saying I'm they too also releases me from this serious, like I have to be so serious. I have to be so, like I have to be a man. I have to be strong and like mm-hmm. masculine. And I have to do... I don't want to do that. I want to just be weird and awkward and strange and like mm-hmm. vain for me, not for everybody, but for me, like my vainness allows me to do that mm-hmm. when I want to and not be held to this, like a man wouldn't do it this way. Well, mm-hmm. who the fuck cares? 
I totally get that. It makes so much sense. And I appreciate you taking the time to just to explain it because I think sometimes we feel like, oh, we just have to accept these, you know, identities. And I want to understand like what yeah. makes you decide to be a he, they, what makes you decide to be a she, her, they, them, anything. And, so- and I mean, I, I struggle with initially, like, am, am I taking space away? Am I appropriating this from a non-binary or a trans person? Am I being, you know, I really had to sit with, am I doing something wrong by, by feeling this way? And then when I realized it was connected to my disability identity and how in queer male spaces, like I used to go to queer male spaces and and say stuff like, oh, I have a giant dick. My dick still works. Like I would do all this really macho mask for mask stuff to like prove even though I was disabled, how manly I was, but still nobody would pay attention to me and nobody would give me the time of day. So part of me was like, what if I just said I was they because my they-ness allows me to be as disabled as I need to be. It allows me to be free of any confines of what I'm supposed to do and just be myself as a disabled person. So let me try that. And the more and more I did it, it doesn't mean that I'm not a man. It doesn't mean that I'm not connected to that. It just means this is another part of me too. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate it. I appreciate like that explanation too. It's pro- probably the best explanation I've heard. Oh, yay. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, just it's so interesting also, too, that of the feelings of like that you were appropriating something that wasn't like you weren't entitled to, which just as someone on the outside feels like, well, why not? And <laughs> I mean, I, I did it, too. I remember when Sam Smith came out as they uh-huh. like a couple years ago, that singer. I remember seeing that going, oh, he's just using his celebrity to be edgy and cool and like be they. And then uh-huh. when, I, when I had the same, when I had the feeling of my they-ness, I was like, what right did I have to be such a prick that I would decide that like, he's not allowed to like, that's not fair. So I've definitely also been on the other side, but like oh, this they thing is so silly. But when you realize that it's a part of who you are and like everyone deserves to be described, however, however they feel, mm-hmm. who are we to say what is right? Well, and that's where you were on your journey of it. Like for me, you know, if my instinct is to say like, what? Then like that to me says, then you need to ask questions because you don't understand it. And, you know, yeah. it's just so much that we deal with in having disabilities that people just don't understand. But um, what I was, well, first of all, I totally feel like Sam Smith is someone you would want to have sex with. I mean. He's so hot. And I, mean, I'm like, I, I, I never have thought of them as super hot, but like maybe I'll go back and review his that. voice alone <laughs> fucking, but what he looks like or his body his voice is just unbelievable it's like true. i have so many straight friends male friends who just like i like am convinced that secretly maybe they want to like bam i mean maybe i'll give his stuff is it i don't know if it's a he and they or just a they maybe i'll just say they because i'm not sure so the, if listen sam smith if you want to if you want to Talk to me about how hot you are. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's sort of interesting of like how we view people as hot or like for what reasons and whatever. But so here's my question I want to ask you. Because Yes, ready. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things that I've really thought about, first of all, I think you know that the whole equity and inclusion is something that came from the disability community. Yes. And oftentimes what I hear from friends, a friend of mine who's deaf and I were having this conversation the other day that it often feels like you know, all of these other groups took equity and inclusion and ran with it and left us behind. Yeah. And so, but I I was thinking that when this whole gender 
um, you know, transition came of being able to decide what your pronouns were, there was some part of me initially that felt this sense of not anger because it wasn't anger, but frustration because I felt like there are so many people in the disability community who don't have a voice, physically do not have a voice, whether yep. it's the deaf community or the deafblind community. And that if we had a voice, we would have made so much more progress that there is privilege, tremendous privilege that comes with being able to own your pronoun, not because, not even because you're able to speak, but because of the country we live in. But yeah. there was something about it initially that like I, I felt like the disability community for so many of us or many, not me, but people who don't actually physically have a voice that there was something that felt like, God, if, you know, we would be able to have that type of um, allowance to yeah, say allowance or like a defiance of saying, no, this is who we are. We define I, who we are. I feel like we don't. I feel like we're still stuck in language like person first language. We're stuck in language like you can't use the word cripple. You can't use the word handicapped. And I have been so policed by other disabled people who have told me that what am I allowed to say and how am I allowed to identify myself? And I'm going, this is not fair. Right. I'm allowed to be whoever I want, just like you are. Like That's why in my signature also, you'll see he, they slash disabled because I make a point of uh -huh. this is my disability identifier. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I tell all the disabled people that I talk to, put that in your signature. So when people address you, they know to say, Drew is a disabled person. Like uh -huh. that's, or if you are, I have a friend who's been on the show a number of times, my friend Leslie, who goes by differently abled, not my, not my language, but when you listen to why they, why she chose that language and they get into the story of why, like you go, oh, okay, I get it. Like I understand why you would why you use that language. And so what I love about people's disability identifiers is the story of why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why does handicap feel good to you? Why does differently abled feel weird to you? Why does cripple feel okay? Like I also use cripple a lot. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, that's that's too much. And it's like, but what are all you like? disabled daddy I mean I'm really playful with the language because I'm, I'm like why shouldn't we play with it why shouldn't it be fun mm -hmm. like we see this a lot in in you know trans and non-binary communities right now where they play with the words they use to describe themselves and I feel like we also as disabled people have that ability well and I I remember I, mean, I often play with it too it's funny because you know I will educate people why why oftentimes people don't use handicap anymore you know, because of the time and what it represents, people who are disabled sitting yeah. beyond, with hand and cap begging for money because that's what people with disabilities did. Now, that's just education. If you use it or not, I'm just telling you sort of the history behind it. But I'm, I am the first one to, I think that we get so sensitive and we walk on sort of eggshells around people with disabilities because we don't want to offend them or we don't want to do anything that's uncomfortable when like we're actually kind of comfortable with our situation. It's usually other people's discomfort. Yeah. I'm the first one to be, to say like, you know, I did something the other day that I was so like happy came out well. And I was like, not bad for a deaf and dumb chick. Right. I mean, like, but that's, you know, so but if you, you put know, that, if you put that on socials, watch how quickly the disabled oh. community would come at you and be like, oh my God, how could you? And it's like, no, there's humor in that. Look at what she's saying. She's saying, she understands. 
how you how you perceive her she's playing with that with you like I think more much like how we need nuance in the disability activism community we need some fucking humor too like we need a chance to be playful and disabled people have to remember that when we police each other we're diluting what this movement is supposed to be about mm-hmm. and which is individualism on top of so many other things I mean yeah I'm the first one to make fun of myself as being like you know deaf and dumb or whatever and me too I, I'm the- because I know exactly what it means I know where it comes from it's fucking ridiculous and stupid and like who you know who cares it's funny yeah it's supposed to be a joke and if somebody is if I said it in earshot of somebody that was hurt. I'd hope they pull me aside and be like, yo, the next time we're together, could you like switch your language around? And I would be like, sure, thanks. Sorry, I didn't realize. But like the way it is, the way I think disability is weaponized within the communities mm-hmm. of disabled people on social media, especially is like, okay, we need to take a minute back here and remember that like the reason why we're so angry all the time is because when was the last time you laughed about being disabled? Right. Like, when was the last time you giggled about how silly it was right it sort of reminds me of white people in the black lives matter movement and like especially on social media who's like the most woke and the the people who think they're the most i see this a lot among my teenagers are like some of the most ignorant like ridiculous and just i mean uninformed people out there like they're the ones that are the problem (laughs) yeah and it's like all this infighting and Uh intrafighting within these communities Mm-hmm. Particularly, I'll go back to disability because I don't want to speak too much on Black Lives Matter because yeah, because I'm a white dude, so I'm I'm just gonna move <laughs> nice and far away because I don't feel like I want to I don't want to take a, the voice away from a, a black person, but like, but I feel like you know we just have to laugh more. It's funny being disabled is fucking hilarious, and we yeah. don't laugh about it enough. Like, like, and I think we have to. We have such an opportunity to be way more inclusive with ourselves not with not between able-bodied and disabled people but just with ourselves if we just would joke around more absolutely and there's so much humor that i find with my friends about my disability i mean so many people will tease me that like wow who you present to like the world when you're in your disability advocate mode to who you actually are with us (laughs) is like two totally different people yeah Uh, because I'm very snarky and I have a terrible mouth, as you know. I mean, but there's so many hilariously funny things that happened to me. And just to give you like a quick example, I remember, you know, I was giving an award out in like DC and I was standing behind stage and someone was gonna have to come and get me because it was totally dark and it was super noisy. I couldn't hear a thing. I certainly couldn't see a thing. And so I was just standing there, like, you know, just waiting. And I felt that there was someone next to me. So I just, you know, would have just sort of lean in and sort of make small talk. I couldn't hear what they were saying back to me. So I was just trying to be sort of polite and not that yeah, yeah. standing next to someone. And someone, the person came to grab me to bring me on stage to present the award. And I put my hand on the person's arm and realized I'd been talking to a statue for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> oh no. So like, <laughs> I mean, here I was like insecure about the fact, I wonder what they're saying back and I'm not hearing them. And I'm trying to like, you know, be as able-bodied as possible or like be friendly and likable. And the reality was I was talking to a fucking statue the whole time, <laughs> so funny. you know, it's like ridiculous. Um, I can think of a time, not a similar situation, but similar in it, it was hilarious. I have IBS too, on top of all my other stuff. So I was in Australia with my mom and we were in, we were in, I had to go to the bathroom and I was in the sling and she's getting me ready to be positioned and she couldn't get me ready in time. And I started going 
and she had to like duck and run because I was gonna shit on her head. And like, oh my god, only that would happen to a disabled person. Like, it's funny because wouldn't happen to anybody else ever in the world, but would happen to a disabled person and the person doing caregiving. So I just thought it was like we laugh about it now because the whole family was there. Like my brothers, my my dad, my sister, they were all there helping my mom set me up to poo. And then I just started going, and it was just the funniest, most disgusting moment of it. Like our. <laughs> It's gross, but it was totally. Really- but there's nothing that makes me makes me laugh harder than farting and shitting. So you have your audience here. Yeah, good, good. I mean, I feel like you could even, you know, that's the kind of thing. Like even to this day, with your mom, you could be like, "Mom, careful, I'll shit on your head." I mean, we do. We do. We have a joke. We have a place in. We also have a a place in Florida where we go. And one time, I had to poo, and I couldn't poo. And I was constipated, and so she calls it the poop deck because we took me out on the deck in Florida and it was a beautiful sunset she's like come watch this sunset have a beer and just shit and uh-huh. so whenever she's over there she's like I'm on the poop deck and we just make a joke about it because it's funny but like that kind of humor about the stuff that we experience is rarely discussed in disability movement stuff and I want to like this is my 2021 resolution I guess is to bring the funny back into disability Absolutely. And we have to because there's so much that's tremendously funny. I mean, when I was in college, I remember there were so many times that I was drunk and I pissed in my roommate's shoe. And I can't tell you, I don't know if it was because I was super drunk or if it was because I couldn't see, but I think it was a combination of both of them. Like I didn't make it, you know, to the bathroom. I pissed in a shoe. I mean, and more than once. Amazing. Amazing. On those hilarious notes. (laughs) Um, this was such a fun conversation and I definitely want to stay in touch with you following this because it was really fun and you I feel like we're kismet in what and how we understand the world so yes um, but how can the people listening get a hold of you how can they follow you how can they sure all yeah. that stuff so my uh, Instagram is at reb reb underscore alexander and my author page is on Facebook. So I think it's Rebecca Alexander, author. I think that's how you find it. And then you're always welcome to go on my website, which is rebalexander.com, R-E-B-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R.com. And I also have rebeccaalexandertherapy.com, but that's more of my professional site. So I would love to hear from people. I'd love to keep this conversation going and bring a lot of the humor back into, or not even back, just to bring just it out. bring it. Out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this was such a fun conversation. You were such an amazing guest. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Drew. Uh, and we will talk, you and I will talk right after this because I want to keep going, but this is great. Thank you for being here today. Of course. Bye. All right, everybody. Well, that's another beautiful episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. Thank you so much for sticking around and for listening and being there for every episode of the show. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com and you can book me for talks and see more of what I'm doing. You can also follow me on my Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore That's where I do a lot of my disability justice and social justice stuff around disability, have a lot of great conversations around disability, and try to make disability accessible to everyone there. So follow me there. If you want to follow the podcast, 
You can download it on any podcast player, as well as you can go to the, our Twitter, our Disability After Dark Twitter, DisAftDarkPod on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to support the show, again, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark to pledge as little as $1 a month or $5 a month. Also, please, wherever you listen to your podcasts, leave us a five-star review. It really helps getting getting the show noticed. Also, if you want to be on the show, pop me an email at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Let me know your suggestions for show ideas, things you want to hear on the show, stories about disability that you want a light shone on. Thank you so much for listening. I'm, of course, your delectable host, Andrew Gerza. Let's stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, and we'll be back soon. Thanks, friends. Bye. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Drew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020-2021